Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Play pod, episode 41. I am your host, Matt Santangelo. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. Martino and Pet, they are a little bit tied up at the moment, so riding solo here, but I'm not alone in terms of who else is supporting me. Uh, in the guest chair, we have the great Derek Gray. I'm sure many of you guys listening know him from the FIFA games, from Kong World Cups, uh, you know, UEFA Champions League, Europa League. He's pretty, if there's a game that's happened, chances are he's done it. He's been on a call. So, Derek, first off, how are you doing? And welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for that grand introduction, Matt. Uh, I'm doing <laughs> fine. I'm up the coast from you here in Massachusetts and I've been in this mode for some time. I've been at home for the best part of three months, which is unusual for me because my life to a large extent on a professional level is all about traveling. No, absolutely. It's everyone's kind of in this weird predicament, right? Where they're kind of in the rooms doing Zoom calls like we're doing right now. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's wonderful to have you on, Derek. I know uh, you're a busy man. You've been doing a lot of Bundesliga content on the Twitter, on Timeline. So I think people are definitely gravitating towards that and enjoying that, especially with the restart, which we will, we will dive uh, headfirst into. Um, of course, let's start with the uh, recent game, the big clash uh, in the Bundesliga. I think everyone was waiting for this one. Uh, Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich, of course, it ended 1-0 Bayern Munich. Goal from Kimmich, that lovely chip of Berkey. Uh, give me your, I guess, your, your reaction to how that game played out, because I know there were some major talking points uh, with Sancho's performance, with um, how Bayern extended their, their gap between them and the rest of the pack for, for the league title. So I guess give me your, your reaction to that. I thought it was a very high quality game, first of all. I thought we saw two teams who are one and two in Germany. And although Bayern deserved it, I think we have to say that over the piece, they they shaded it. Dortmund didn't play badly. I didn't see it that way at all. I thought it was a good advert for the Bundesliga, notwithstanding the fact that we don't have fans. We don't have this uh, wonderful character of the crowd, which is a huge selling point of the Bundesliga. That's why we talk a lot about football as it's meant to be in Germany. But the game itself was highly compelling. I thought Borussia Dortmund, first few minutes, started the better team. Bayern found the rhythm as it went on. Um, Kimmich, you mentioned, a classy goal to decide such an important game. And 13.7 kilometers he covered. I know we don't talk about running stats Mm -hmm. a lot in games, but that was quite a notable statistic. And the most of any player since they, they began collecting data on that front. And they do mention that a lot in Germany, maybe in comparison with other leagues. But it was just a superhuman performance by Kimmich, I thought, himself. Um, I wondered if Bayern might miss Thiago. They didn't really. They have Goretzka, who can play in the center of midfield, not exactly the same sort of player as Thiago. But I thought the players who you would look to for Bayern to step forward on such a big occasion all pretty much did. I didn't think there were failures in their side at all. Borussia Dortmund, you might pinpoint one or two, but they were playing Bayern. They were playing the record champions. They were playing the best team in Germany. And there is always going to be a difference when you compare and contrast other matches with that. It is, after all, the big one. Um, People will talk about uh, refereeing decisions and in particular the Boateng uh, elbow handball. Um, I don't get as hung up about that as maybe a lot of people because I see VAR in action every week. That happened ridiculously quickly and Dortmund got on with the game and under the laws of the game you can't then stop um, for an incident like that unless it's a straight red card or um, mistaken identity. Then 
there's no power on the part of the officials to stop the game. So Dortmund, in a sense, were their own worst enemies going back to that incident. But the fact of the matter is they didn't see anything wrong with it at the time. They didn't think there was an issue. We have the benefit of, of watching it, remember, several seconds later and then going, oh, well, you know, that, that should be a penalty. Different angles, yeah. Yeah, all these things. And um, I understand the argument that, that, you know, certainly the referee in an ideal world could have a look at that himself. For me, it's in the gray zone. It could be a penalty, might very well be a penalty, but not necessarily a clear and obvious error on the part of the referee. And because the game restarted so quickly uh, and Dortmund made the decision to do that, then it becomes a, a moot point. So, you know, sympathy, but, um, you know, that is the way that the cookie crumbles sometimes. Absolutely. I think, you know, when you look at everything, it, it was it was one of those games, high intensity. It was it, it lived up to the billing despite it not having the theater and the whole, you know, to your point, the choreography, all those things that kind of play into such a big game like this. And, and football in general, right? The atmosphere fans are such a huge part of it, which has been a major talking point for all these leagues restarting, right? How we were not going to have the fans here. But I think, you know, the one thing I've noticed from watching um, the Fox you know, soccer coverage of these games uh, since the restart is they've had done a good job at least kind of adding to it with the, the, the crowd noise, the kind of, I know it's not um, orthodox. It's not the, that what we expect, right? Cause it's, you know, we want the fans there, right? Fan interactions are just so huge, but I think overall the um, delivery of this experience has been uh, fantastic. And I think when you have a big game like this um, for them to deliver that and really not skip a beat, I, I think it, it bodes well for uh, the rest of the other leagues who are trying to um, emulate this and trying to get their leagues back up and running when they do have those big matches in mind because that's where people flock to. And all eyes are on the Bundesliga right now, of course, with some of the other leagues still um, following in the next couple of weeks to get their leagues back up to speed. But, yeah, I thought this match was um, a fantastic, you know, the tempo, the energy. It had everything there, but the fans were, of course, is something that we're going to strive to get to in, um, you know, the coming months or as soon as we possibly can. But um, I want to talk about, you know, the, the, the Bundesliga restart in general, because there's been a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, that the handling of the whole COVID-19, you know, the procedures, the, the safety concerns, how players are celebrating, you know, they're not making that contact, you know, the balls are being cleaned consistently. A lot of things are, they're not walking, teams are not walking out side by side like they normally do as well. But in terms of just sticking with for this for a moment, um, the actual play itself, what if you, who, which teams have impressed you? Those obviously Bayern Munich, I'm sure Borussia Dortmund, uh, Bayern Leverkusen, and although they had a really rocky game a couple of days ago, which teams have impressed you out of the restart and which teams have not? Um, I would mention Hertha because they were a team really floundering before lockdown and a team that has had you know, all manner of problems on and off the pitch this term. I mean, they're on to their fourth coach <laughs> in yeah, one campaign. True, yeah. And Bruno Labadia has come in, and it's as though he's been there forever and has got his message across. So a couple of excellent wins against Hoffenheim and then in the derby against Union. And then a 2-2 draw with Leipzig away from home in one of the midweek games. So I think he has quite clearly made the, the sum of the, the whole squad better. Uh, and I would, I would absolutely single them out because I think they deserve the praise that has come their way. Leverkusen, you could have mentioned until they ran into 
<laughs> the express train that was Wolfsburg the other night. I think a lot of people have looked at Leverkusen for a while and thought this is a very impressive run that, that Peter Boss has put together. So, um, so maybe not so much after that game, but still accolades to go to them based on the prior performances. So I think it's been kind of, it's been fits and starts for most of the clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the clubs have had their ups, their downs. Some clubs like Schalke pretty much downs all the way. The team I uh, keep a close eye on, Köln, you know, they've been strange. They've not been as good as they were before lockdown with a couple of 2-2 draws. One which saw them lead 2-0, came back to 2-2 on the part of the opposition. And then in the derby against Dusseldorf the other way around, where Köln left it late before coming back to 2-2 and then lost to Hoffenheim in one of the midweek games. So I think it's maybe understandable that we haven't seen one team absolutely fly out of the blocks. Apart from results-wise, Bayern. You know, Bayern have done this again. And, you know, they weren't great in the first game back against Union. They had a couple of defensive errors against Frankfurt, but still put five past the opposition. And they won the big one. So, you know, ultimately, you've got to hand it to Bayern. Uh, People keep saying, you know, this is the season where they're going to be tripped up. But they are the class of the field. They remain the best team in Germany. And they've demonstrated that with their performances. 100%. 100%. I think it's a testament to the work that Flick has done with that team, right? I think post, we call it maybe date back to Ancelotti, right? When they, when they let go of Ancelotti, they had Heinkees come in there. They had obviously with Niko Kovac, he maybe didn't live up to the expectations. But generally speaking, they're a team that hasn't kind of fluttered. They haven't fallen into such a, a deep state where they aren't the class or they aren't respected as the uh, premier team in, in the Bundesliga. So I think Bayern Munich, again, they're seven points ahead on the way to another title. And, you know, they're just a, a testament to the quality they have in numbers, yes, but also the fact that they're top to bottom, one of the, the better managed, well-organized uh, clubs in, in world football. And I think that's ultimately, even on days where they don't maybe look as sharp, as you mentioned in their in their first game, um, you know, I was looking, I know Lewandowski had to hit the big goal. I think that put him at 40 plus goals on the season for his fifth straight year. Only Lionel Messi and Ronaldo have done that. Um, I'm a huge Lewandowski fan myself because I'm Polish. I have Polish ancestry. So I think that's kind of really been interesting to watch his growth and his takeover, if you will, of the league. But you, know, you touched on Hertha, and I think they've been a, a big focus for many teams. right? I think, obviously, they, they got Piontek. Um, he scored the equalizer yesterday in the 2-2 draw with Leipzig. But one of the names from Hertha, quickly, uh, who's who's been getting a lot of attention uh, in the media for transfer rumors. And I'm not going to ask you too much on where they think they're going to go, but there's been ties with Cunha to enter. Now, I think Cunha has been one of those players where uh, maybe if you, if you look at his stat sheet, you look at the games he's logged, he hasn't had the, I guess, the CV, the, the, the extent of a full season of maybe 25, 30 games like some of the, these other wingers have. But again, it's obvious that when you watch him play, he's got quality. He's got all these these skills and abilities that translate at the highest level. What do you think of him so far, what you've seen from not just the, I guess, before the restart, but just his season in general? Because I know he's a very young player, um, Brazilian international, and he's very much uh, getting a lot of interest on the, on the transfer, uh, transfer mill, excuse me. Yes, I watched him a lot when he was at Leipzig, and he didn't get a regular game at Leipzig. That was the big problem. He was being asked to come on for 20 minutes and do something special. He often did something special. I remember mm-hmm. another this world goal he scored for Leipzig against Leverkusen last season, which was voted goal of the season in the Bundesliga. So he has that sort of flair in his repertoire, but only scored two goals altogether. That was one of only two that he netted in his time with Leipzig. So he needed to be playing more regularly, made the move to Hertha. 
Um, what you've got to remember about Hertha is that they are undergoing this sort of metamorphosis off the pitch. They have a, a major investor in Lars Windhorst, whose goal is to really make Hertha a proper capital club. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be interesting to follow that trajectory. So a player like Cunha um, obviously fits with what Bruno Labadia is doing. Uh, you know, you've got Veda Dibizovic, who's sort of the old pro, and then playing off him, you have Cunha, who can provide the, the flair and the dynamism. So I would have thought that, you know, it would probably be good for his career to be buckling down at Hertha for a while. Uh, and, you know, maybe the move can come at some stage. Um, what we know about most South American players is that Italy is appealing, you know, at some point in their career. There, there's a, a cultural, um, you know, as they would say in, in Italy, a sort of a, a gelimagolo between, um, uh, between players from South America and, and Serie A. So I would think at some point in his career, we will see him in Serie A. It would be a logical fit. But I hope selfishly as a Bundesliga broadcaster that he remains in Berlin for a little while longer. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, where, um, you know, we're so caught up in the transfer, right? I think it's, if we talk about the one club players years back and, you know, now the, the market's completely changed, right? You feel like when a player has a couple different, couple great weeks or a couple great months ahead of the transfer window, they're just off and running because, you know, injuries come up, you know, nothing's ever guaranteed. Right. But I think we saw with Holland, right. He went from Salzburg, he went to Borussia Dortmund and all of a sudden, you know, more clubs want Real Madrid, you know, Manchester United, Juventus, you name it, you know, so things happen very quickly and it just, it goes to show you how much of a little bit of momentum in, in your play can ultimately lead to bigger and better things. I, I would agree with you. I would like to see Cunha stay at Hertha full season without sort of pandemic things kind of factoring in, get that full, a full load of games to kind of see what he can do over a full slate. That move will always be there. As, he, as long as he's healthy, he applies himself. And many of these same things apply to, um, you know, the next guy, of course, I want to talk about is Jaden Sancho. He's been uh, obviously one of the top rated uh, young players in world football for a couple of years now. He's putting up the numbers. It's not, he's not just a numbers guy. He passes the eye test too. He's sensational. Between him and Julian Brandt, I mean, do you think there are two players that Borussia Dortmund can expect to keep long-term? I mean, if they're going to knock a team like Bayern Munich off their perch or be the team to knock them off their perch, you would assume these two players are cornerstone players. But realistically, you know, bigger and, 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 and larger stages talk. I think obviously these two players have been linked, um, especially Sancho with a big Premier League move. Do you think that Borussia Dortmund can retain these players long-term to where they can build around them? Well, I hope so. Again, to go back to my previous answer, I hope so, because I think the Bundesliga does give a platform to players that other leagues don't always, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sancho is an example of that. He went to Germany at a young age. He made a conscious decision to do that, and it was the right decision. He could be languishing in the reserves back at Manchester City. He, he could right. be the player that has all the potential in the world, but doesn't get the chance to realize that potential. So I think every player, it's incumbent upon every player to ask himself what is best for his career. Now, I know a lot of people at Dortmund, a lot of the players have tried to say to Sancho, you know, don't be too hasty with this. You know, you, you have done really well here. Why don't you continue to do well? With Julian Brandt, I think it's maybe slightly different. He's a German player for starters. He's only just got started at Borussia Dortmund. I would imagine he will be there for a little while longer. With Sancho, I could envisage that he perhaps wants to go back to England and that may or may not happen during the summer. You know, he's had one or two issues off the pitch 
not too many. I think they're blown out of proportion for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, he's come back from lockdown, not quite match fit. That's why he's not been starting games for Borussia Dortmund. And Lucien Favre did say before the, the Bayern match that he'd only really been back in full training for just over a week. And it wasn't quite the right time for him to be starting. But he will be starting again. And, you know, we shall see. I always think, though, that players are wrong and agents are wrong if they sort of dismiss a club like Borussia Dortmund as some sort of second-tier club. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, let's I face it, you're playing in front of, in normal times, you're playing in front of 80,000-plus every week. There's no other club that can offer that. You know, what a stage that is. What do you want as a footballer? Do you want a bit more money? Maybe. Maybe. But... You know, ultimately, what's the point when you really have everything at a club like that? And the next thing for the club is to win the Bundesliga again, to go back to the days of, of Klopp in 2011 and 2012 and to do that. And it will happen. We just can't say when it's going to happen. But one of, the, one of these years, it will happen. So, you know, does Sancho want to carry on with this platform that has been so good for his career? Or does he want to go to a different platform? It's his decision. But I think that he is giving it a lot of thought and he's right to do so. Yeah, and with Sancho, it's fascinating too, right? Because I think, you know, he's still so very young. I think he's one of those players that, you know, if he stays on this trajectory of his career, that move, that bigger move, quote-unquote bigger move, will, will always be available to him. You know, we saw the same thing with Eden Hazard. And Hazard gave, you know, all those years at Chelsea. And then eventually he was like, Real Madrid's my destination. That's my dream move. And I think he made that 27, 28 years old. So Sancho is a, a baby in, this, in the grand scheme of things. He's still very young. He's still got so much to accomplish. And I think if he's able to stay at Borussia Dortmund, he can build such a great legacy um, for himself to a point where he can always have that in the back of his mind, in the back of his career. And he can also push forward to you know, return to the your Premier League or you know, try his luck in, in, in La Liga or wherever he you know, sees, sees he wants to go. But I think, you know, it's it's hard to kind of play into the mind of of a, of a young player, right? Because I think we saw we saw what Paul Pogba he left Manchester United, go to Juventus, and then he went back to Manchester United because he wanted to fulfill those sorts of dreams and those sorts of things that he had in his mind. So it's hard to really say what everyone's motives are. Some people like to just stay; they like the comfort. And then there's other players that just like to move around. They like different challenges. You know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic has been everywhere, and some of these other players they just like to move around. They like being tested. Um, uh, in, in within a couple years of each other because, you know, the shelf life of a footballer, um, despite what we maybe see, it could be a little bit shorter than what we think. So, um, you know, getting down the line to highly rated young, rated young players that have been, um, you know, just standouts in general the entire season, regardless of the stoppage. Uh, Kai Havertz, I, I know he's one and some people are pegging him to be, I guess, the next big signing um, from, from the German Bundesliga. Um, between him and Musa Diaby, who came over from PSG in a pretty inexpensive deal, they've been causing havoc for Leverkusen, um, despite the lopsided result recently. But overall, generally speaking, those two have been very dangerous and they've been on uh, great harmony, sinking play, so on and so forth. Havertz and Diaby, I guess, give me your thoughts on those two players so far, because we know they're of, of great, uh, great ability and um, their, their interest from abroad is well documented. Well, Kai Havertz, I've been watching and commentating on since his debut. And I remember watching him to begin with and thinking, wow, this really is somebody who makes the game look effortless for one so young. 
Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, what caught the eye was he was a little bit sort of different in terms of his build. What I didn't know at the time was that he had a growth spurt around the age of 15, 16. He, he struggled with some of the youth teams in his earlier development, but he grew all of a sudden. And, you know, he's, he's tall um, and, and not necessarily the classic sort of build for a, a playmaker strategist type Mm -hmm. but he has a perfect way to pass he has an eye for that pass he can finish with the best of them with the left foot his right foot isn't bad either his head Um, (laughs) his head as we've seen recently playing as a false nine so tactically he's got this flexibility too and um, Peter Bosch, his coach at Leverkusen, thinks he can get even better. He was actually disappointed with him in the recent game against Werder Bremen. When most of us were raving about his performance, he said, no, he can do more than he, than he did. So that tells you that the player himself is somebody who doesn't necessarily think he has made it, or maybe just that Peter Bosch feels that with a player like that, you need to keep challenging him on a, on a day-to-day basis. And... Undoubtedly, we're going to be talking about Havertz for years to come. He does have the look about him of a once-in-a-generation talent. I don't say that lightly, but you know, as somebody who covers the Bundesliga all the time, he consistently stands out. And um, it's just a privilege to, to watch him and all the skills that he brings to the table. Now, uh, Diaby, I hadn't watched him until the start of this season. And what I like about Diaby is just his persistence and the fact that he's a bit of a throwback. He's a, he's a dribbler. He loves to take on his opponent. You can see the joy, the glee in his face when he beats that opponent. And he's not afraid to take on a shot. And he has been a real enrichment to Bayer Leverkusen, as you said, not necessarily, you know, in football terms anyway, costing the earth. And another of these players to have come from PSG. It, it, it's really a, a feel-good story, I think, because... Um, he has earned his place in that side. And that has been to the detriment of a few others who normally would be starting for Bayer Leverkusen. So, yeah, there's a youthful zest about that whole club. And, okay, they they lost badly to Wolfsburg to end what had been a magnificent run, but that can Mm -hmm. happen to any team. Yeah, you know, when I watch Diaby too, I think it's it's fascinating to see how some of these, uh, I guess, you know, these PSG prospects who've just kind of left their system. And I, that's kind of, that was really well documented in the summer. Whereas when PSG were getting all these, they spend a ton of money to get all these big time players, but they have so much youth, youth talent that's being dispersed and spread out. I know Nkunku from um, Leipzig is another player who's, I think he's on 13 assists this year as, as someone who's just coming over from PSG too. So it is a, a testament to what PSG have been able to accomplish in terms of their, their, uh, Youth Academy and how they've been able to just you know, be a hotbed for talent, maybe not playing for them specifically, but you know, we're seeing the kind of diversity that Bundesliga offers and presents for you know, the young uh, England international like Asancho, or you have, you know, it's obviously it's homegrown talents like in the, the Germans, but also players from all over who are young are seeing this league for the, the, the great football, the great um, opportunity it really is. Um, you know, so when I, when I look at the Bundesliga, because I'm, I'm, I'm a Serie A guy, right? I'm a Serie A guy, the Premier League, and, you know, obviously we have the access to the Bundesliga, and I've been watching it extensively um, before, before the, start, the, the stoppage of play, but also since the restart. And I think it, there's so much talent here that I think people are not really keeping an eye on. And I think with, with the beauty about it, in a way, is that by because Bundesliga was the first league to, the big league to restart, 
all eyes have become concentrated on what Bundesliga has to offer, minus, of course, the theater of, of the fans and the atmosphere that it presents. But, you know, in terms of the quality of play, it's definitely not to be slept on. It's definitely not something to take lightly. And it's being much more appreciated, I think, by uh, more of wider Europe than maybe before, because I think it's given them an opportunity to see what this league has to offer. And it's quite, quite enjoyable to be able to see what some of these other teams, minus a Bayern, um, can give on a given match day and how some of these, young, you know, these smaller teams can humble those bigger teams uh, when, when they are going right. But I, I want to move towards um, you, know, you specifically as the guest, right? So um, you know, any, anyone who's watched football games over the years knows you've had your, your finger on, on the World Cup, the Euros, every sort of big tournament, chances are you've, you've been there at the heart of it, especially in the United States on ESPN during the 2018 World Cup, 2014, the Euros. Your experience is calling games over the years. I guess take me, I mean, it's very open and it's very vague question, but you know, describe what that's felt to call such big games you know, of that magnitude that so many people tune into um, from your position. And then I want to ask you as a follow-up, what's been the best match or best experience you've had um, throughout your entire career calling games? Well, the answer to the first part of the question is it's a privilege every time you find yourself covering a major tournament for a huge audience such as in the USA, mostly for US viewers Mm -hmm. in my case, but for other countries as well. And you go into it very much like I think a player and a coach goes into a major tournament. And that means you do your homework. And that means that the homework has to be ongoing. And with me, it is ongoing. I I find that every day, every week is part of the the homework process. And you're always adding little bits and pieces to it. And, you know, you are a perfectionist as a commentator. I think most of us who are in this business are by nature perfectionists. We want to be ready on match day so that we have left no stone unturned. And I have to say, I've been doing this job for more than three decades, but the adrenaline is still pumping right before a game the way it always has done. You know, from my very first professional game back in 1986 to, you know, whatever the next game is, you know, following the stoppage, you approach it the same way and you go into it with that sense of fastidiousness, hopefully. And you know that you're going to get one or two things wrong. That happens when you talk live contemporaneously in any forum. And remember, you are doing that day in, day out during a tournament. And in the era of social media, people are merciless about that because you misspeak once. And I always challenge people, just try a normal conversation. Try to avoid misspeaking just for one second, you know, even every Mm -hmm. half hour. Then try doing that in a forum where you are talking on an unscripted basis about something that is happening in front of you over which you have no control. The only control you actually have is the preparation you have done beforehand Mm. to give yourself as much control as possible. Exactly. So it's, you know, that is the job. It's a wonderful job. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I love every second of it and I do love the pressure that goes with it. And I've been lucky enough, as you said, to, to be involved in one capacity or another with every world cup since 1990 in most cases as a commentator, but also actually as an organizer uh, for the World Cup Organizing Committee here in the USA in 1994, but for the most part as a commentator. And similarly with the Euros, and and I would have been doing the Euros, would have been getting ready for the Euros um, coming up very soon had we not had this pandemic. So um, it is, as I said, an ongoing process. And you're always learning, 
you're always preparing, you never stop. Um, the second part of your question about the uh, the best experience. I'll give you the best game. I mean, the Champions League years on ESPN back in the 2000s were wonderful times. And I was at every Champions League final as a commentator during that period. And the one that stands out, of course, would be 2005 in Istanbul. Oh, Milan against Milan Liverpool. Fan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking I'm talking to the right, well, maybe the wrong person about that here. But um, the right person in terms of Milan at, at that time were the class of European football. They were the club everybody aspired to be. And, you know, if you'd been lucky enough to go to the, uh, the Milanello uh, training ground at that time, you would have seen just what they represented. It was the ultimate in facilities. In the aura around the team. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you think about the players of that time, personified really by Paolo Maldini, for me, more than anyone else at that particular time. And, you know, to get a final like that, and I go into finals as a neutral, even though, you know, I'm, I'm from Aberdeen, from, from Scotland, I've commentated on my home city club on numerous occasions. But even when you, you have an allegiance to one club or another, you are impartial, you go into a, a final, totally impartial. I have no leanings to Milan or Liverpool other than having great respect for both clubs for what they've done down the years. But to get a final like that, for it to be 3-0 after 40 odd minutes, for Liverpool to come back and make it 3-3, for it then to go to penalties, and then to have this amazing material with Jerzy Dudek and, and what he was doing, and it brought memories back for me of what Bruce Grobelar did in the 1980s, particularly in that final against Roma back in 1984 for Liverpool. Just all those things came together to make it the, the perfect narrative. And as I said, just really blessed to have been there, to have been lucky enough to put words to that one off occasion yeah Istanbul it's always a you just have to say the word right Istanbul and everyone as a football fan yeah. everything kind of comes back to that 2005 uh Champions League final and you know for me is even as a Milan fan I think in football in general as a football fan in general I think it's you know when you you have the yes the football on the, on the, on the field can can do so much and have so much of an impact on us as the viewer as a fan as the obsessor but it's the calls it's the 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 commentary that you flash back to that just makes it and brings it all to life, right? It gives it so much energy. And I think, you know, guys like you and, you know, I you know in the States that we have on ESPN on a regular basis, Matteo Bonetti and, you know, there's so many great personalities, so many people who call such a great game and just seeing how they put their own spin on it and how they ultimately help uh, elevate the experience and the enjoyment that we do get from football is, is something that's, I think I've learned to appreciate much more when I've you know started doing the podcasting, started really kind of honing in on games versus just kind of being on Twitter or tweeting or being on my phone while the game's happening. Just listen to a game from beginning to end, and you can really appreciate the craft, craftsmanship, and the preparation that you know uh, individuals like you have to go through to do that. But speaking of uh, preparation and and some those sorts of things, um, you played a role in, in the FIFA franchise, and I think you know that's. Probably uh, it's more or less you've commentated the games in the, in the game, but I guess describe to that experience to me because I, I've watched videos and, and I've read from people who've um, you know have worked in game development, um, even something as simple as commentary that could be in terms of what all the factors that go into a football game. You know, 
describe that process to me. You know, you and Lee Dixon uh, had had some had, had a say in some of the recent uh, versions of the FIFA franchise. So just talk to talk a little bit about that for those listening, because I know the FIFA franchise is so huge right now, um, and it's not just for gamers, but it's becoming much bigger than that, and it's kind of transcending the way we consume football. Yeah, well, I've been part of FIFA 19 and FIFA 20, as you mentioned with Lee Dixon as my co-commentator. Lee, who I know well, used to live just down the road from me uh, in my London days. And it's quite funny because I've realized now there's a whole generation out there who might know my work only through FIFA. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, maybe they, they, you know, don't watch football on TV. I'm not working in the UK anymore. So especially in the UK market, I I hear from a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, you're the FIFA commentator. You know, what else do you do? (laughs) Because I'm not, I'm not, my work is not um, heard so much in the UK. But um, it came about in the latter part of 2017. I'd not long moved back to the US, having been in the UK for almost a decade, latterly with BT Sport. And I got this call out of the blue saying there's interest in you from a video game company. It was all a bit mysterious, a bit almost Mm -hmm. cloak and dagger to begin with. Um, And that was because contracts were still being worked out and various other things. But to cut a long story short, I was offered the the job. Would I like to be part of the the FIFA 19 series uh, with regard to the Champions League, which obviously I have a a background in from the days with ESPN especially, but also with BT Sport in the UK. And the interesting thing about it was I couldn't tell anybody about it for about six months. I had to wait Mm. for the official announcement in June of the following year. So I knew I was doing this and actually had already started doing it. But I keep it tight-lipped, yeah. Yeah, I, I honestly, you know, apart from close friends and family, I really couldn't say anything to anybody about it. So the process is that I go into a studio 20 to 25 days a year, and we basically commentate. And we commentate on different things, different scenarios in games, introductions. A lot of it is you know, introductions, uh, names of players, mm-hmm. obviously, and v- various different inflections according to where they are on the pitch and what they're doing. And, you know, it takes a lot of time. And vocally, it's challenging in a very good way. I always say I go in with a smile on my face. I come out with a smile on my face because I do like that challenging part of it. But we do have to be careful about, you know, how many high notes we do at any particular time because, you know, try doing that for a half an hour or an hour, and, you know, the vocal cords are gone for the rest mm-hmm. of the day. So we have to be quite judicious. And I've got a great team I work with, a great production, audio production team. And we're all very close. And we collaborate. You know, we all work together. So, you know, 20 to 25 days, not consecutively. We break them up into little blocks throughout the course of the year. And it has been, you know, one of the highlights of my broadcasting life to be part of it, to be part of 19 and 20. Yeah, I, I think, you know, people may may not fully understand, I guess, what work goes into that. I think you know, they see the, the, how much uh, in-depth, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes work goes into, you know, the player creation, the faces, the visuals to make it and to bring the game to life. But, you know, when, when you just look at how many names, how many teams, how many, uh, to your point, how many sort of things you have to kind of commentate and really kind of, you know, record and it's repeated so many times. You got to understand, I mean, this is world game, world sport, millions and millions and millions of people play it. And you have all the names too of the players. Like you're not just calling a one-off game or a Champions League game. Like you're getting, you know, an entire catalog of people 
of players and you got to get all the names right. And I guess that's, it kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, that's right. You're, uh, you, you, the preparation that goes into what you do on a regular basis with the commentary, you know, you know, put that in there and then they have to kind of repeat or repeat or repeat it. Did it ever get, did it, did it ever get tiring in terms of having to you know, repeat the same names, the same, um, you know, you know, instances in the game, you know, did that part of it ever get a little bit too exhausting for you? Or was that something that you were kind of just, you know, embracing because it's, it's something different, something new? It's more the latter. And to be honest with you, my motivation when I do it, even though, you know, when we record things, they might be repetitive in nature. I always think, okay, I need to sound good here for the time when this particular line is used on the game. You know, I can't Mm -hmm. let my level drop off. It has to be the same consistent level. So it's a kind of a consistency of product that you're looking for when you do a video game. And hand in hand with that, you mentioned names goes the pronunciations. Uh, And this often is something I hear about, particularly again from fans in England. I'm extremely big on making sure that the names are the names that the players themselves use for their surnames you know so that uh, to me it has to be authentic if I were a player from Portugal and I were playing the game and a lot of people play the game with the English language commentary it's sort of the default world commentary I'd be a bit annoyed if the commentator were saying my name wrongly Mm -hmm. were anglicizing the name so to me it's part of my job that I get all that right and the one that comes up all the time is because he's now playing in England, is the Portuguese player um, whose name in Portugal, his family would say it this way, is Bruno Fernandes. <laughs> yeah. But in England, yeah. they, they call him Bruno Fernandes. Now, that's a sort of an anglicization, that's an approximation. But that's not how he would say the name himself. So it's important for me, I don't really care about what somebody in a, in a pub in the Midlands of England might say. It's important to me what the player and his family and people in Portugal say. So to me, that's the authentic part of the game. And um, I make absolutely no apology for that. And so a lot of the time, when you spoke about preparation earlier, a lot of the time preparing for me is the list of names and going over them and making sure if there are two or three that I'm not sure about, that I check and double check and triple check so that what goes out in terms of the finished product is authentic. Now, let, let me ask you this before we move on to our final question here, and then we'll wrap up. Have you, how, how often do you play the game, if at all? Did you just record it and you just left the product go and that was it? Or do you kind of still find yourself being involved with it in some degree, whether you consume it, whether you see um, you know, these eSport you know, players playing the game and then they hear your commentary? How often do you consume it? Or was it just one of those things where you kind of did the job and then you kind of just let it be and let your, let your work speak for itself? Well, what I would say, first of all, I should probably explain, first of all, that when, when I'm commentating on the game, I'm not seeing the game. This surprises mm-hmm. a lot of people. They think I'm sort of commentating on a, on a, on a game and coming up with lines based You're on You're doing it. phrases, like the cut phrases and the player names. and It's all blind. So it's all you know, a scenario. And then I am visualizing what I would say in a game, if it were organic, and then that goes into the game. So um, it's a very good question. Before I got the FIFA gig, I'm probably the wrong generation. I, I didn't have a, you know PS4 or anything like that. I had watched clips of it mm-hmm. before. And I'm at the stage now where I can play it on a rudimentary basis. I'm absolutely terrible at it. <laughs> but I wanted to have a better understanding of the game so that hopefully it would make my commentary better on the game. I, I could you know, use the time there to, to see what works and what doesn't. 
what I've sort of come up with as a better compromise rather than me playing the game badly is to watch good players of the game playing it well. Okay. And if, and if I do that, and I, I do spend a bit of time doing that, you know, I'll watch certain games, Champions League games or Europa League games that are online. And again, the main purpose is not to, because I love the sound of my own voice, not that at all, <laughs> but because it's useful for me to hear how my commentary is deployed in the context of a game like that. And then I can make little notes, you know, and even we talk as a group, you know, with the producer saying, yeah, I think maybe this line that I use a lot, maybe, maybe that, maybe I've overused that, or maybe that's in the game too much. And maybe next year we can correct that a little bit. So it's all part of the, the preparation for, for future games. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's, it's crazy to see how far this game's come along and how far it's pushed into the mainstream of really just, you know, reg, you know, general culture. Some people, you know, they don't, they're not, you know, their, their first taste of football doesn't come from necessarily always from their parents bringing them to a game or handing them a shirt. It's FIFA. Some it's people FIFA, yeah. learn the game through FIFA. Yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, getting back to what you said, you're the FIFA guy. They, the first thing they get is they buy the game they hear the commentary, they hear the players, and then they go and watch the games, and then they hear the actual commentary live from you. And I'm sure they've learned to appreciate it much more when it's actually done off, you know, off, off, the, off the cuff. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I heard from somebody recently who said that he, uh, it was somebody in South America, who said that he actually uses FIFA to learn football English, you know, so to improve his English, but to, to improve his football English. So that's quite a lot of pressure for a commentator. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, Derek, it's been it's been wonderful to have you on. We just have one quick question and then we'll let you wrap up, plug whatever sure. you're working on and then we'll we'll send you on your way. So, this one is from Johnny Johnny K underscore 13 on Twitter. He goes, "If not if not even Nico Kovac could stop Bayern from winning the Bundesliga, what if anything will?" And then also, what where is Derek's favorite place to eat in Köln and what does he order there? <laughs> <laughs> Two good questions there. Two great questions. Okay, um, yeah, I don't think Bayern are going to be stopped. Uh, I think that one of these years, as I said, they will be stopped. You know, Leipzig mm-hmm. are capable as well as Dortmund, but uh, you mentioned Hansi Flick. He has come in and done a wonderful job. It's going to take a lot of strategic thinking from the likes of Borussia Dortmund and RB Leipzig to stop Bayern, but I'm convinced it will happen uh, one of these years in the near future. On Köln, which is my home away from home in Germany, um, my recommendation would be go to a place called Bei Oma Kleinmann, which is over towards where a lot of the students hang out in Cologne. And that is an old-fashioned restaurant, no frills at all, but you will get the best schnitzel anywhere in the Rhineland and uh, washed down by a nice Kölsch. You cannot go wrong. So by Oma Kleinman is my recommendation. There you go. I think, I think Johnny's got everything he needed with that response. So Derek, wonderful response. Thank you for coming on. Tell us where people can find you and plug a little bit of the work you've been doing. Well, the last couple of months has been quiet because of this stoppage. And obviously being in the USA, I can't get to Germany to broadcast Bundesliga matches as usual at the moment. But you can find me. I've been doing a lot of Bundesliga content, as you said, uh, on my Twitter feed, which is at Raycom, at R-A-E-C-O-M-M. Wonderful. And you guys can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. Make sure you guys are following the podcast at State of Play Pod. For any inquiries, Email us at stateofplaypod at gmail.com. We appreciate your support, guys. Hope you're doing well. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.